0: Thanks Eric. Thank you everybody. Take a moment just to get set up. If you'd look in the Bible at Galatians chapter 2, that's where we'll take the word of God this morning. Thank you for singing so well, so encouraging in the body to lift up Jesus and to let him be seen. Last year, when I came and asked you, I usually ask every congregation where I am if anybody in the congregation speaks Italian, Italiano. And uh, no, none of you do or did. Anybody this year? Did you learn it? Anybody? But then I asked the whole congregation, did, does anybody eat Italian food? Anybody still eating Italian food? Yes. All right, well then, we, we're, we're talking each other's love language here today. And I'm going to continue on from that. In fact, now, I come from Italy, and Italy's Roman Catholic. There's a doctrine called purgatory. I'm not an adherent to it, but this is going to be probably the closest thing to purgatory you're ever going to get. And what I mean by that is I'm going to talk about food today, and uh, some of you are going to love that because you love food, and some of you are going to hate that because I'm doing it right before lunch, and uh, it's just going to make you long for lunch. Uh, But uh, we're going to look in Galatians chapter 2, because there was a great instance over food uh, that actually impacted the gospel. And the way that I'd like to share this with you is I'd like to be able to give you three different points, like all good preachers do, to give you three different points, but I want you to be able to speak beyond menu in Italian, okay? So I'm going to give them three words in Italian, some of which you might already know. They all start with M, and we're going to increase your language skills. And so the first word that we're going to utilize today, the first point is mangiare. And that is a very common word. How many of you recognize that word? Maybe some of your relatives used it uh, if you have Italian descent. Mangiare. It means mangia. It means let's eat. And so that's going to be our, our first point. We're going to talk about food for a little while as well. But before I do that, let me give you the overarching picture, okay? Uh, if you take notes and, and, and write quickly or slowly, let me, give that, uh, let me give you the picture. It is this. The good news is making much about Jesus, okay, making much of Jesus begins at our tables, in our homes, principally by dismantling our prejudices, And opening our lives in grace to other sinners. I'll just repeat that real quick. We'll go through that again. But making much of Jesus starts first at our home, at living room level, at living room level, at our own tables. Principally, by dismantling our prejudices and opening our lives in grace to other sinners. So I want to thank you, church, for the privilege to be able to speak to you today and bring this message that the Lord's laid on my heart over these many months, and also for the opportunity and thankfulness to your pastor, who's become a friend of mine, and a friend of our church. We talk through the year. I call back here to Arizona. We have good chats regularly, and uh, looking forward to have Chuck come out, and maybe a few of you, uh, and then through the years to partner together. So um, thank you for being like-minded and welcoming. It's been very gracious and good. Let's. Pray just for the blessing of God on his word. Father, today and this morning we want to pray and I want to ask you that my words be your words, that the Holy Spirit would breathe now and in this place, and that we can see from an ancient text um, a, modern, a modern issue, and that um, your grace will move in us. And as it moves, that we would be So impacted by your Holy Spirit that others would find refuge in grace and be pointed to Jesus, that we as a church family would make much of Jesus together in Tempe. In the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Amen. So the first word, as I mentioned, is mangiare. Let's talk about food just for a moment. It's not just fuel, and that's one of our first problems that we encounter. It's much more than that. When we eat together, it's an event that is given to us by God, and it's given to us daily to enjoy. Uh, Amen. Keep keep that coming right there. All right. In Italia, where I'm from, it is very common for us to share an evening meal for two to three hours at a time. Sometimes we share lunches for two to three hours, and it's a glorious day when we can get both (laughs) lunch and dinner in those time frames. It really is. And there's so much ministry that happens at the table and where we, where we are. When you think back in the Gospels, the, or, or the writer of Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, when he wrote, he, he wrote so often about Jesus going to parties, didn't he? And, it, and he says, how did the Son of Man come? The Son of Man, in Luke 19.10, Mark 10.45, they tell us that he did come to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But how did he come? In what way? Did he come preaching? Yes. Teaching? Yes. Healing? Yes. He certainly did all of those things, but he came eating and drinking. There's a New Testament scholar uh, named Robert Karras. He says this. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he is at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. If you read the whole gospel. So much so, that his very enemies accuse him of being a glutton and drunkard. And what's a glutton and a drunkard? Someone who eats too much, someone who uh, drinks too much, someone who parties too much. And in Deuteronomy, the punishment for a drunkard and a glutton was stoning. A son of Israel was to be stoned when he did that. That was the accusation. It was pejorative, it was critical, it was ugly. He was accused of law-breaking. Here's Jesus being accused of law-breaking. But what is the Son of Man doing when he comes to our earth? God, an incarnate, walks among us to eat. And the Jews expected him to come to wrap things up by defeating God's enemies, kicking out the Romans, and vindicating his people. Instead, Jesus comes and says, Mangiamo. Let's eat. And just just like he did daily in the garden, with Adam and Eve at the Tree of Communion. And when he walked with them, he said what? Let's eat. You see, meals are a powerful expression of welcome and friendship in every single culture. A recent advertisement for Viking cruises, if you ever happen to take one on a river in Europe, said this, food is the gateway well, I got to get the voice down because it was really cool. He had this great, he had, food is the gateway into every culture and the window into unlocking all of its treasures. Great music behind and food and stuff. <clears throat> every culture, it's a window into unlocking all of its treasures, unless you're from Britain. <laughs> Anybody taste British food? Uh, seriously, what is going on there? There's a whole island that needs to repent for what they're putting on people's plates. But the key that Luke's gospel gives us is it's the way that Jesus comes eating and drinking. Because he embodies God's grace when he eats and drinks. And he enacts out God's mission by sitting and eating and drinking. Especially with tax collectors and sinners. Now if you're a guy back then, to be called a tax collector is the worst name you could be called. If you're a gal, to be called a prostitute is the worst. And if you're all in the whole group, you're just sinners. A tax collector, sinner, Gentile, etc., were traitors to the cause. Traitors to Israel. But that's who Jesus would eat with. They were collaborators, you see, with the Gentile occupiers. They would collect taxes from their own people. They They would raise the taxes, do a very Italian thing, and they would take it And they would um, then pay it to the Romans and keep some for themselves. And that defiled God's holy land. They were were definitely not considered the patriots of their day. So that led the table companions of Jesus, the people that he kept company with. It led the Pharisees, the law keepers. Notice how I do this the law keepers to criticize him to conclude that there's no way that Jesus can be from God look at Luke 530 and 739 chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 they're all saying he can't be from God look at the company he keeps look at who he eats with look at where he spends his time but there's good news for us God's grace is so amazing That he prepares a table in the presence of his enemies and eats there with him. Remember Psalm 23? He prepares a table in the presence of his enemies and eats with them. That's Jesus. And that's beautiful. And so eating meals is an everyday need. And it's an everyday gift. It's a need and a gift together. And it all comes from God. It's a beautiful means of communicating and expressing the gospel. Why? Because it communicates to people the aspect of invitation. You invite people to join you. It communicates acceptance of other people when you're looking eye to eye and peer to peer at the table. It communicates welcome to people. We all enjoy being warmly Welcomed. It communicates uh, parity and friendship. Eating a meal with people communicates kindness, favor, grace, and sharing, and unselfishness, and servanthood, etc., etc., etc. And you can come up with even better ones. So what happens when we eat together? Well, we share. We share food as friends. We sit at the same level. Can I ask you, don't we all ache for friendship beyond our Facebook walls? I've got 2,000 friends. No, you don't. You don't even know who they are if you're at 2,000 people. I, it's just, I'm just kidding there. That's all right. <laughs> if you have 2,000 friends on Facebook, you probably don't remember half of them. We all ache for friendship. What do you do when you sit at the table with others? You share diversity. We all have different backgrounds. We might look differently, speak different languages, uh, come from different countries even. We don't eat bread alone because God is wonderfully creative and people ache for community. People ache to be included. When we share a meal together, one of the benefits is we open the door to outsiders People who normally wouldn't share our time and space or our agenda, and we invite them in, and we reflect God's invitation to us. What was God's invitation to us? I have one door, and I call out to you in the darkness, and you're starving, you're dead, and I want you to come in through my only door and sit at my table with me at a lavish feast and enjoy my kindness and my mercy. He's good. You see how it enacts grace? We welcome the outsiders in. And most of all, you see, in our homes especially, we are most who we really are. It's where we put our hat. It's where we, it's where we live. We really are who we are. And if we are people of grace, radically in wonder of Jesus in love with him, and channels of goodness to others. Imagine, imagine the value we place on others when they come in our home and they see a kingdom outpost, a heaven outpost. A Christian home is like no other place on earth. A home with Jesus inside of it, you can't replicate that. You can't have a company that pays you benefits that even gets close to that. A Christian home lets us see heaven while here on earth. And it sits down at a table and shares with that, shares that grace. And people ache to be valued. And people ache to be accepted. So these are all benefits of sharing a meal. But there's a problem with our, our way that we mangiare, and that is we live at, at, at the food actually is at the heart of our rejection of God think about it the very first act of rebellion was an act of eating food was involved with the wrong person at the wrong table wrong communion wrong tree ever since that time our relationship with food often goes wrong because our relationship with God has gone wrong. And that's the way it is with every good gift. We are committed and dedicated to our happiness. Every one of us are. And therefore, we take gifts and good things and pleasurable things, including food, and we over-desire them. We turn them into something that we think will ultimately satisfy us, not temporarily satisfy us. And so we can even turn food into our religion, into our worship, into our ideal, into our hope, into our idols. You know how that works. Diet plans that are more strict than any religion on the face of this planet. Right? Or when I don't feel right, I need security, so I overeat probably chocolate. Or gelato. Go there. Right? Or when I'm too tired, I'm going for, I'm going for something unheard of. A four-dosage espresso. Four shots, right? What do we do when we are down? We abuse the gifts that God gives. We find comfort in our food instead of in our God. Food becomes a functional, substantive savior, doesn't it? It's a, way, it's a way out or it's a way in. We overeat. We undereat. Food is integral to our humanity. So it's no surprise to find that in our very brokenness, we can see our relationship to food in who we really are. And against this backdrop of food gone wrong... Throughout the whole Bible, from the beginning at the Garden of Eden to the great banquet at the end where Jesus serves us food in a menu that is so delightful and never runs out and is always new. Jesus, God, in his word, teaches us the biblical picture of salvation as a feast with God throughout the whole scripture. Think Passover. Remember Passover, the Israelites are getting ready to be freed and go out into the desert to be married to God at Sinai. That's the covenant. And and they're supposed to escape Egypt and her armies and her oppression. And and they're getting ready and they're packing up and God says, Mangiamo. Sit down, let's eat. Why would he do that? Because he's going to point to the one meal that before... God rescues us and gets us out of our Egypt. Jesus sits down at the Last Supper. And at that Last Supper, right before he goes to the cross and is torn apart by Rome and her armies, he sits down and looks at his own and loves them to the end. John 13:1. 1, no one could ever have loved them more. He loved them to the final point, the ultimate point. And he looks at them and he says, Mangiano. Let's eat, and he pictures that Passover meal in himself at the high point of Israelite history in First Kings four twenty, in the reign of Solomon. We're told that the people of Judah were as numerous and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. The high point, the golden years of Israel. Think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. God promises a meal on a mountain. A feast of rich food for all people, Isaiah 25 says. On that occasion, when we get there, death itself will be on the menu. And God says, that's my dish. And he swallows it up. It's an eternal feast that no one will ever need to leave. And the more you eat, the hungrier you will become. And you never be hungry again. Jesus provides for us a foretaste of this feast when he feeds the 5,000. And at the end of that miracle, on the beach, in the wilderness, when God feeds his people, there is more food at the end than there was at the beginning. And that's exactly what the church is offering ever since. There is more grace That the more you explore Him and the more you feast with Jesus, there is more and more of Him than there was at the beginning that you even tasted. It's amazing, and so God gives us an invitation. He says, "Come here and manjaré with me. Come here and eat with me." But the feast, the invitation, comes at a price. And this is the hard news before the good news. The price is the precious blood of Jesus his son. Someone has to die. Life has to be given to give you life to continue on. We're outsiders, we're enemies, we're the excluded. But Jesus takes the judgment we deserve and he becomes the ultimate outsider himself. He goes out. He's pushed out of the world onto the cross. He's forsaken by his own people, and then he's forsaken by his Father. And as a result of that forsakenness, we are welcomed into the feast as insiders. We become his friends. We become included. We become children at the table. And the invitation keeps going out to all, to everyone. Come and manjare. With God. That's why we have the communion meal. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's a corrective meal, is it not? It's the corrective meal of reconciliation. It's that meal that shows this was the price to give you an invitation to come in. Let's remember him every time that we take this and proclaim his death until he returns. In the early church, Many scholars have indicated that communion was celebrated as part of the normal meal when Christians gathered together. It was a special drinking and a special eating of bread to remember Jesus at their tables. But our problem in that invitation is, you know this quite well, we live in a graceless culture, a culture of competition. We're all trying to get ahead. A culture of insecurity in which we're all trying to prove ourselves. A culture that takes every divine issue and politicizes it. A culture of spite in which we hold grudges, envy, success to protect ourselves. In this culture, our shared meals, in this culture of gracelessness, when we share meals, we share a moment of grace. It's a sign of something very different. It's life in the kingdom. As one author, Peter Lighthart wrote, he demands that Christianity demands of us that we all adopt a new set of table manners, a new way to eat. You see, eating together enfranchises people. We don't even need, and this is beautiful, we don't even need to be able to cook. We just need to be able to be people who eat and people who love Jesus can we do that? Can we do that? Francis Schaefer said this, don't start with a big program to reach others at living room level. Don't suddenly think that you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you, writes Francis. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Open your home for community. So if an ordinary thing of eating together carries this much ability to show grace, what are other life rhythms that God might impact to show grace? Here in Galatians chapter 2, there's an eating issue. There's a situation. The apostle Paul has to confront this because the gospel's at stake. In fact, in chapter 2, an entire region is at risk of losing the truth and the fruit of the gospel and making a ghetto of exclusive eating clubs. Therefore, you had to be a certain race, and you had to practice a certain right to be able to eat, and then hear about the gospel. Paul says, this is no small issue. This is massive, because Galatia sat at the door of Europe. And the gospel would not proceed in that multicultural context into the doors of Europe and proceed beyond if they didn't get their eating right. There were two things in Galatians 2 that were manifesting this problem. The, the private act of circumcision. Okay, This is in the first part, verses 1 through 10. In verses 1 through 10, the private symbol of circumcision Paul brought Titus along as a living example of the grace solution, saying, here's a brother who is not circumcised. And Titus just has to be, I, I think he that's a real man. He just has to be so confident to be able to walk along with Paul and Paul introduce him as here's a guy who's not circumcised. I'm, you, you can work that one out, but I'm just thinking, Titus has to be very confident himself. But Since that's a painful subject, I'm going to talk more about the food part because that follows in verses 11 through verses 14. It was here that it was manifesting not in a private symbol but in a simple public form of acceptance of who they ate with. The meals represent anywhere the nature of man loves to take over and load it with cultural rules and expectations. We have that everywhere we go. In this day, in this era, it was who you ate with equaled cleanliness and holiness. All right? Who you ate with equaled whether you were in the in crowd of God or not. Or you were holy or unholy. Sharing meals became the battlefield where churches would be planted or they would stop in that moment. The question before Paul was, would the apostles stay true to the good news when it had implications that were outside of Israel in the way that they ate? The question to the apostles, you see it says down in Galatians 2, but um, I went in, in verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, this is when he went to Jerusalem, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. And they only asked us to remember the poor, which was the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Boy, we all love a good apostolic fight, don't we? Let them duke it out. This is a big deal. He did. I had to oppose him openly, because here is an apostle, Cephas, Peter, who forgot the gospel. I mean, this is hello, guys, this is Peter. The guy who walks on water gets out of a boat. Any of you willing to do that? I'm scared of the dentist chair. This guy's willing to get out of a boat in a storm. This is Peter who pulls a sword on a Roman guard in front of a legion and takes a guy's ear off trying to go for his head. This is Peter and he forgets the gospel. The good news of what? Here's the good news for Peter. Peter... Jesus didn't accept you based on your religion or based on your culture or based on your eating practices. So why would you do this to others? Why would you accept others? Because what was Peter doing? Peter would act with the Gentiles He'd hang out. He would eat with them. He would eat their food. He would enjoy their company. He would accept them and look them eye to eye when he would share the meals. But what happened when the brothers from Israel showed up? He'd get all legalistic. And he'd, stop, he'd start ignoring those who were in Christ who were Gentiles. Based on what? Their eating practices and their blood. Where they came from. So, this is the question. Paul has to go all the way to Jerusalem to tell the apostles, the gospel's bigger than this. And it's really critical. Here's their question. Peter is, um, or excuse me, Paul is asking them, can you live with a gospel that permits Gentiles who you Jewish men were taught to despise to be welcomed at the table and eat the things you were taught to abhor. Could you welcome them? You were angry at them. You were taught to ignore them. But can you bring them in and eat with them? And Peter, even before, you go back to Acts chapter 10. Peter is there um, being taught a food lesson. You know, remember the food lesson? God put animals in a great sheet and lowered them, and Peter is seeing this vision, and God told him to kill, grill, and eat. Grill is in in there. And how do I know that? Because he said you're not supposed to, uh, the rule was all across the scripture, they were not supposed to eat of blood, so you have to grill it. Kill, grill, and eat. Anybody up for a good barbecue? Six of you. There's got to be more. Come on, guys. Barbecue? God loves barbecue too. (laughs) But even he is struggling with the cultural baggage that would have rendered the gospel ineffective. By the way, I I love in that story that immediately when God tells Peter to kill, grill, and eat, that he sends him to an Italian to do it, (laughs) Cornelius. He wasn't a British guy. <laughs> he was an Italian. I think that's just irony of the scripture. <laughs> if you're British here today, I love you and Jesus. I'm, I'm sorry. I think you know the message for you. <laughs> but seriously, if they did not welcome the Gentiles at the table in their living rooms and in their homes, it would have had huge ramifications for us Today. Just looking around here, the diversity in this room would have been cut dramatically. Every pulled pork sandwich would be a sin. And by the looks of things coming back to America, we are lovers of sin. <laughs> the church would be exclusionary. We would build people into a form of slavery. We would say, you have to eat like us and be like us before you can meet our Jesus. We would start imposing rules on people before they could see the grace of Christ. If nothing was said, the church would plant only people it wanted to have included in it. And that's all the church would be. It is such a tempting problem that even Peter needs that gospel again. And this is all the problem with manjare, And this is where our problem comes today, and it's with law. And I'm going to use the word manipolare, and that's the word to manipulate. Okay? This is where law meets grace. If law doesn't meet grace, we have manipolare, which means to manipulate. The purpose of law was always meant to bring people to a destination, always meant to get people somewhere. It was not meant to be an end in itself. Torah means an arrow. It means to be shot and arrive at a goal. Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the Torah. I am the goal. I'm the destination. The instruction arrives at me. That's the purpose of the law. But the problem is, we are saved by grace, but our flesh will always hunger to go back. And we will use our culture, and we will use our tables, and our prejudices, and our food to do it. In our church recently, we've had a number of Italian Mormons coming to Jesus Christ out of LDS. And one of them is a well-spoken psychologist. He was in line to be the, the, the bishop of the ward of our province. And last summer when I was here talking with you, the very Sunday I was here talking with you, was his very first Sunday in our church back there. So it's God fishing this guy out and pulling him into grace. And in his testimony, he stood up just a few weeks ago when we baptized him, and Francesco said, I was a perfect Pharisee and happy to do it. I was always trying. I was always setting new rules. And I was always looking down at other people who didn't meet up to what I thought they should be. Those were my prejudices. But God came in and deconstructed that. And now I'm here as the publican, you know, beating my chest and saying I'm not worthy and welcomed at the table. I, he said, I... I, we would rarely talk about grace. We would reference it because it was part of religious vernacular. But when I looked in the scriptures and God opened my eyes, grace drips on every page of the Bible. Yes, it does. This is This problem that we have of going back and conscripting people back into the law making the law an end of itself and not getting it to Jesus is called shadow law. And this is what was happening in their day. They were taking a a religious rite putting it back over the top of grace, which we are all tempted to do. It was showing up at their table and it was conscripting people to say you're not accepted unless you do this. Do we do that? In our church, could it be the mode of baptism? Could it be the style of music? Could it be manifesting a spiritual gift, a political party? By the way, I've been out of the States for about 20 years. God is not red. God is not blue. God is gold. Could it be an academic level? In Peter's case, He forgot the gospel. And you know where he forgot it? You know how he could tell? Paul says, Peter, you forgot it at the point of your welcome. The very point of where you welcome others in. Our welcome is so incredible. Fellowship with Christ was sufficient for a welcome like this. And in fact, Tim Keller writes, fellowship with Christ is the only basis for our welcome. Peter Jesus didn't accept or reject you. So why would you, at your welcome, look at others and categorize them as out? Therefore, again, making much of Jesus starts at our living rooms. It starts at our dining tables. It starts at the point of welcome. And here's how we become foolish. I've titled this message, O Foolish Galatians, let Let the Gentiles Eat. How do we become foolish? With our beautiful gospel? Paul says in Galatians that in verse one of chapter three, "Oh foolish Galatians, who's tricked you? Who has put sorcery over you in your minds, bewitched you? We become foolish when we reapply the law in a context and we redefine what it means to be holy. In the case of the Jews and Peter, it was nationalism. That was the context. You're not of the right birth or blood or right. Nationalism. Do we practice that today? Now I'm going to get to preaching, so just buckle in. Yes, we do. Why not learn more Spanish? Church on Mill. Why not? These are not just illegals coming up and taking our money. These are human beings that need Jesus. You you see? Don't start there. Start with Jesus and work backwards. Start there. Nationalism. You, you sit at the base of Arizona State University, one of the most diverse campuses in the country. There are families from all over the world that are come here, study here, and settle here. You know one of the best ways to reach them? Learn how to cook their food and say, is this any good? Just do that. Put a dish of theirs before them and say, is this any good? We become foolish with the gospel when we manipulate What it means to be holy at the point of our welcomes. When we lift up a technique more than a glorious Christology, when we close our doors and sit comfortably at our tables and go about our jobs, and when we have adopted the culture of convenience and we love the functional Savior of comfort, we have lost the good news in those moments. Without the gospel, We have to manufacture self-esteem by comparing our group with other groups. If you don't get the good news, that's all you'll have left is what we say in Italian, superbia. It means to be superb or superior. And you only have my culture and my background and my language and my ideas and how I was raised as the only basis to find identity. That's all you'll have left unless the good news frees you and says no children of Abraham from every nation on the planet sitting at our table. Amen. Oh, you guys got real quiet there. <laughs> guys, don't make foreigners or strangers conform to us before they can ever meet our Jesus. So here's the good news, and it's the last M word. We had mangiare. Can you say that? Manipolare. We had manipolare. Try that one. Manipolare. Oh, you guys are good. And now we have missionale. Missionale. You can't put it like mission. It's, it's more in the front. Missionale. Yeah, yeah, you're getting it. Missionale. It means missional. It is the aspect of grace. You see, in this passage, when he opposed Cephas in Galatians 2, certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but he drew back and separated himself. He questioned him in verse 15 justified by faith. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but he's justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Justified means that you know you stand condemned, but the penalty of condemnation says, I don't pay that. Someone else does. That is faith in Jesus Christ. He did. Therefore, you are free to live with grace. We've also believed in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and continues in the conversation. And if you go down to verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul says, I I did the law, but it was all about me. It was what I achieved. It was all about Paul and nothing about Jesus. So I died to that so I could live to God. And then that famous verse. Notice in the area of food issues, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who sit at the table and eat and live, because that's the conversation going on, but it is Christ Jesus who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the power, the enabling power of the mission of God, faith in the Son of God. Who did what? Well, He loved me. He gave Himself for me. Look what He did, and now I can do that. So I do not nullify the grace of God, because if righteousness were through the law, the end, look at what I've done. If, it, if, 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 if I brought my holiness to the table, if it was through that, then Christ Jesus died for no purpose. A marked example of a Christian who gets grace radically is that we see the cross so wonderfully that it breaks down our prejudices and opens our home. This is mission. You see, you have the ministry here. I've talked about ASU. You've got all the diversity around you. You have people that you work with. You have relatives that live near you, that you are ministering to. You have families all in your neighborhood. Yes, you know the ministry that's necessary, but you will never place yourself into apolitical. You'll never place yourself into awkward, into intimidating intercultural experiences by opening your home unless you have a new motivation. A marked motivation of a Christian is I so see the glory and the beauty of the cross that Jesus is all my wonder and I can't help to share that with humanity even if I look silly to a person who doesn't look like me. This is a new motivation. See, it's not just that I'm asking you church on Mill to put more willpower into this. You know, get your homes open, invite people, put yourself into awkward situations, make dishes incorrectly, All these different things. No, no, no. I'm asking you to eat with others because you've been freed to eat with others. Jesus is the good news. This is why we can make much of Jesus. But you have to recognize, how do I do that? You have to recognize the stranger in all of us. We are all foreigners to the gospel. We are all out, if you will. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 9, the Bible says this. Do not oppress a sojourner, for you know the soul of a stranger. The words you know in that verse means to know by experience. It was to Israel. You know what it's like to have to journey. You know what it's like to be oppressed in Egypt. You know what it's like to get out and be rescued. And if you know that, then you know the soul of what it means to live where people are. And if you know that, then go back and enter into it. Being awake to the suffering of others helps us find our very own healing. We are brought out of the captivity of our inner Egypt into a freedom and wholeness. Remember what it was like to be a stranger before Jesus and it will help you extend compassion to yourselves and then to others. It should capture our heart. There's an author who wrote a book called *A Fellowship of Difference. And in it, he says, in Christianity, the we is always bigger than the me. The we is always bigger than the me. And now I can live by faith to the Son of God. So if I look at people, and we have a political party in, our, in, in the north where we live in Italy, and it's called North League or Lega Nord. And in that political party, it, it, they're, one of their, their emphases are no foreigner and no religion. So obviously I'm out. But if we can bring the gospel to Italians where all of a sudden and they're, they're everywhere. They're in the businesses and in the administrations of the cities, etc. But if our Italians, who are believers, your brothers and sisters, start to understand grace, and they're including all these different people at their tables too, what kind of sign will they give when they come in and instead of looking down at people saying, what are you doing here? This is our land. You're not European enough. You're not Italian enough. Instead of looking down, they kneel down and they look up and they wash the feet and they welcome people there. What does that say? There's a greater power who makes me esteem this person as a human and as my brother. So be careful. Don't ever get to the point of they're not American enough. Know what it means to be a stranger and welcome others in. So really, what is he saying? Oh foolish Galatians, let the Gentiles eat with you. That's it. That's it. To make much of Jesus, to make much of Jesus, we open our homes at our tables, break down our prejudices so the Gentiles might eat with us. And when they do, Grace is channeled, and God's family grows. Amen? So, mangiare, non manipolare, don't manipulate, don't change the rules, go back. And number three, be in mission, or missionale. Eat with others, all kinds of others, people like you, people not like you, and show grace, show grace. Tell them about who Jesus is. And enjoy your food. Amen. Amen? That's good. Lord Jesus, thank you this morning for the opportunity we had to share share this time together during this hour. To see a cruciformed way to live of how you redeem our tables, how you redeem our lives, how you welcomed us in as outsiders and strangers and foreigners. And it wasn't based on where you placed us or where we were born, but it was just based on your foreordained love. And now this is the call that you have for us. You have a ministry, but you also provide the enabling motivation. Thank you. The motivation that I no longer live to me and law-keeping achievements, but the motivation that I live to God. I've died to that, and I live for God. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for this um, amazing teaching that the Apostle Paul, our Apostle, gave to us. That we might be a fellowship of difference. That we can say, yes, we're different, but hallelujah, God is great. Jesus is wondrous welcome. And oh, I pray that Church on Mill, at the point of welcome, at the point of grace, will light up with the gospel and be known and be known as a people who embrace others right when they come. In the name of Christ Jesus, thank you.